John's Gospel, there's one group of people that keeps popping up, and we find them in the very first verse of chapter 7, which says, The Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. But wasn't Jesus a Jew? Well, in one sense, he certainly was Jewish. But according to the Gospels, he definitely didn't fit in to this one particular group. And today, we'll attempt to unpack the Gospels' complicated category known as the Jews. Welcome to episode 12, Was Jesus a Jew? And I'll admit, at face value, it seems like a very silly question. I mean, we've all seen those bumper stickers that say, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. And I must admit, while something about those bumper stickers doesn't seem quite right in our current culture, I do think it's still an important question and an important point to make about the differences between being a Jew and associating with this group of people identified in the Gospels as the Jews. Those may have been two completely different things back in Jesus' day. And what we'll find out is it's not as easy to determine what the gospel writers are talking about as you might think. So to help us sort our way through the situation, I'm going to be relying on a journal article from back in 2008 by Cornelius Benema. It was published in Tyndale Bulletin number 60, volume 2, and it is titled The Identity and Composition of the Jews in the Gospel of John. And so Benema is a senior lecturer in New Testament at Wales Evangelical School of Theology in the UK, and he has research interests like the Gospels and character in biblical narrative, which this particular article definitely delves right into those interests. So he starts the article, Benema does, by just stating that the term, the Greek term, hoiudaios, occurs 66 times in the Gospel of John. That's the Greek term for the Jews. That's how it's translated. So from here on out, I'll just reference it that way. But you might be wondering, well, where in the Gospel of John have we seen it? It sounds familiar. We're in chapter 7. Let's just walk back through, starting in chapter 1, and very quickly just remind ourselves where we've seen this before. In chapter 1, verse 19, it's the Jews who sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem out to the wilderness where John the Baptist was baptizing, and they were sent to ask him who he was. So we see them very early in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, it's the cleansing of the temple episode, and in verses 18 and 20, Jesus has a conversation with the Jews about the temple. They ask, what sign do you show us? for your authority to cleanse this temple. And Jesus says, destroy it, and I'll raise it up in three days. And the Jews again respond and says, well, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you might have just thought back then that it was all the Jews uh, from an ethnic standpoint that were asking that question. But the context, even in chapter 2 there, specifically kind of narrows that down to something a little more particular. In chapter 3, we met Nicodemus, If you remember, he was described as a Pharisee, which we'll discuss later in the article how Pharisees are possibly a subgroup within this, the Jews category. But in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and then it goes on to further describe him as a ruler of the Jews. So we see it again in chapter 3, 
Interestingly, in chapter four, where we might have constricted it in the first three chapters, the use of that term, it seems to be broadened back out in chapter four when Jesus meets with the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. Because if you remember, he has this to say in in chapter four, verse 22, you worship what you do not know. Those are plural use, talking about Samaritans in general. We worship what we know for salvation is from who? The Jews. Okay, so that seems to maybe broaden it back out to be more inclusive than just a small subcategory in Jerusalem. In chapter 5, we see Jesus carrying a man and telling him to pick up his pallet and walk. And in verse 10, the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. The Jews figure into that conversation as it goes through chapter 5. And in chapter 6, even though we're not in Jerusalem, we're up in the Galilee region, what we see at the feeding of the 5,000 is that there were some Jews that were listening in on the conversation, and they began grumbling in verse 41 about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And again, in verse 52, the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then as we dive into chapter 7, where we are right now, we see Jesus coming out of the Galilee and coming back to a festival in Jerusalem. And there's a complicated cast of characters in chapter 7. We're going to finish the episode with walking through who some of those characters are. But before we do that, I'd like to get back to Benema, and I'd like to have him walk us through the complicated mess of trying to figure out who it is that the gospel authors are referring to when they reference the Jews. So at the beginning of the Benema article, he puts together just kind of a summary of where he's going with his arguments, and it's really helpful. It begins with this. Uh, The article examines the reference of the term the Jews in the Gospel of John, and the debate is whether the term refers exclusively to the religious authorities or to maybe a broader perspective of a religious party or to the religious authorities and maybe some common people or to simply the Jews in general. And so just in that first sentence, we know Benema's article focuses squarely on the Gospel of John and how the term the Jews is used within that specific gospel. And based on the context of each of its uses throughout the book, his argument is going to be that sometimes it refers to a smaller subcategory and sometimes it's more broad and includes more people. And so the context is really going to be the key. He goes through many of the uses of the term and outlines who in specific context the gospel writer is referring to when he uses the term the Jews. And while it's helpful, I just got to say it's it's a bit confusing as well. It's much easier as a reader to just open the gospel and read the term the Jews and assume that it just applies to one group all the time. But that's not exactly what we find when we get into the context. So let's take a look in a little more detail what Benema has to say. One of the first points that he makes is that the Gospel of John shows evidences of an already existing rift within first century Palestine between a couple different groups. And one of those groups would be referred to as the Jews, 
But then there's another group that we might today consider Jews, but they would have considered themselves Israelite non-Jews. And that seems a bit confusing. And it goes back to the history in the Old Testament when there was a divided kingdom. Uh, Originally, there was one kingdom and it was called Israel and everybody that lived there were Israelites. But then after Solomon's reign, there was a divided kingdom. And the northern kingdom was still called Israel. And that's really confusing because the first nation was called Israel as well. The people from that nation were still considered Israelites. And the southern nation, where Jerusalem was and where the temple existed, was called Judah. And eventually, the people from that nation were called Jews. And as we come into the New Testament context, that land mass in the south part of the country is referred to as Judea because it has its history as the nation, the kingdom of Judah. And what Benema is pointing out is that in first century Palestine, the world that Jesus was born into, there was an existing rift between those that considered themselves Israelite non-Jews, meaning that their identity is not essentially formed from identifying with the southern kingdom from the Old Testament, and the religious authorities that rule around Jerusalem and around the temple— but ethnically, they still find their history in the Old Testament. And that's just really confusing. But you've already seen this. You've already seen comments from people within the Gospels about people from the Galilee region not being exactly who they are, and they're in the south and in, in Judea. And Benema says, although the term Jews probably retains something of its ethnic connotation or its geographic connotation, its referent was extended to include any Jew who was loyal to the temple ideology or the Judean religion. And so the temple worship, historically, that was part of Judea and part of the Jews. But in Jesus' day, all the people that worshipped at the temple didn't live just in the southern region of the nation. They had moved up into the north. They had moved out into the outlying areas as well. So you could be considered a Jew in first century Palestine, not necessarily based on where you lived, like it was in the Old Testament, but more really attached to what it is you believed about who God is and how he was to be worshipped. And that brings us to the first group that Benema outlines, the Pharisees. We're all familiar with that term. We see it often in the Gospels. And he just points out that the Pharisees were experts in Torah learning. And according to Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, they were the most influential school of the day, and they enjoyed the general support of the populace. Pharisees came from all classes and professions in Jewish society, and they were laity. They didn't belong to like the priesthood. And they were spread all across Judea and probably also lived up in the Galilee region. And Benema says there seems to be a growing consensus that the Pharisees in Jesus' time had the power of influence rather than control. They were not only able to influence the common people, but also those who had power and control and policy-making power. So in modern-day terms, from a social media standpoint, they would be influencers. And in their social media circles, they would have a lot of common people, but they would also have a lot of very powerful people listening to what they had to say. So the Pharisees, Benema says, when the Jews are referred to in the Gospel of John, sometimes that includes this subgroup of the Pharisees. And like we said earlier, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was also a ruler of the Jews which suggests that he was part of the Sanhedrin. 
I just pulled up from my Lexham Bible Dictionary, Sanhedrin, and I'll read that to you, the Supreme Council in charge of Jewish affairs in Roman Palestine. While the exact makeup and nature of the Jewish governing body in the first century Palestine is uncertain, the varying descriptions of the Sanhedrin reveal a group consisting of priests and religious teachers who met to decide on legal matters with religious, political, and social ramifications. So the Sanhedrin is a group of religious police of their day. They didn't have complete authority because Rome was still in charge, but regarding religious stuff in the nation of Israel, the Sanhedrin didn't answer to too many people. And the chief priests were part of the Sanhedrin. This is the second group that Benema outlines as a referent of the term the Jews. And he says the chief priests were members or leaders of various high priestly families, the priestly aristocracy. And the high priest was the leading chief priest. And as such, the chief priests were the temple authorities, and they had the power to convene the Sanhedrin on judicial religious matters. They were the political and religious authorities, the ones with the power to control and make policy. And then Benema identifies a third group that sometimes is a referent of the term the Jews, and it's just Jerusalem authorities in general. So he says, against the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is what we see in chapter 7, the Jews in verse 26 and 48 probably refers to the temple authorities, which would include the chief priests, although it could also refer to other members of the Sanhedrin like the Pharisees. So while that term, the Jews, could refer to Pharisees or the chief priests or authority figures in Jerusalem, it could also refer to non-Judeans, people that don't live in the southern part of the country, and people that don't have authority either. Benema says, there is good reason to believe that not every occurrence of the Jews in the Gospel of John refers to religious authorities. He gives the example that in John 5, Jesus' audience is simply identified as the Jews and may just be the Torah and temple loyalists from Jerusalem. He also points out that the audience in John 7, it presents a mixed audience of common people and the particular religious partisans, while their leaders, the chief priests and Pharisees, only appear in verse 32 and 45 through 52. So this term, the Jews, as it's used in the Gospel of John, it really is dependent upon the context in which it's used. And it probably, even within the author's mind when he was using it, John probably thought this term could apply to a number of different situations and people groups. The Benema article concludes with a nice little Venn diagram. So I'll describe it to you. If you just picture in your head a big circle, and that big circle would represent all the different categories of people that would fall under the use of this term, the Jews. And so most broadly, it would refer to Torah and temple loyalists. And they're going to be found especially, but not exclusively, in the southern part of the country, in Judea, near Jerusalem. That's the big circle. But then there's smaller circles within that big circle that are going to outline all these other groups of people that we've identified earlier. Some of those are going to be like the temple police or the chief priests and the high priest or other authorities, which include the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus is in that, and he's part of the Venn diagram because he's in the Sanhedrin. He's also a Pharisee, which is another group that falls within this. 
So Benema does a great job of just outlining how complicated the term the Jews is. And what we pointed out earlier is sometimes even Jesus includes himself within this group, even though this is the group of people that seeks to kill him. Benema concludes his article this way, Our study has led us to conclude that the Jews in the Gospel of John are a particular religious group within Judaism, the strict Torah and temple loyalists, who are mainly located in Jerusalem and Judea, but could also have been present up in the Galilee region. And I would even argue beyond Benema's conclusion that Jesus's statement to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 even broadens it a little bit more. Jesus uses the term we. We worship at that mountain down there in Jerusalem, but you Samaritans worship at a different mountain. And so Jesus, in one sense, includes himself within this category of the Jews. He would even consider himself a Jew in that sense. We could consider Jesus easily as a Jew, but also he doesn't fit into this category. They're his opposition. It reminds me of the story of Martin Luther, who for a period of time was within the organized church and tried to change it from within, but then at some point decided, I'm not a part of that anymore and we're going to start something new. So with Benema's information in our hip pocket, let's dive back into chapter seven. And I'm just going to kind of run down the list of the cast of characters from this chapter. There's a lot of different subgroups that are identified as we go through. And I do this when I teach. I encourage people that read the Bible to not just read the story, but keep track of who it is that's being described as the story goes on. Chapter 7 begins, as we've already said, in verse 1 with a description of the Jews and identifying that Jesus was unwilling to go to Judea, that area of the country where the temple is in Jerusalem, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. But next we find in verse 3, Jesus' brothers are mentioned. And they said, leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may also see your works which you are doing. So not to get too nitpicky, but the broader circle in the Venn diagram of who the Jews are are people that follow the style of worship at the temple. And so in one sense, in a very broad sense, you could include Jesus's brother in with the Jews as well. They're encouraging him to go to Judea. Let's pick the narrative back up in verse 11. It says, so the Jews, so there's our term again, the Jews, We're seeking him at the feast and we're saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds. So you seem to have some distinction between this category of the Jews in Jerusalem and the crowds that were there. Although I got to believe that the crowds at the temple in Jerusalem during a feast would be sympathetic to the temple worship and in one sense could be considered the Jews. So The term that John is using here seems to be more restrictive, a smaller circle in the Venn diagram, maybe to the religious authorities, the chief priests, maybe the Pharisees. Because it says in verse 13, no one was speaking openly, nobody in the crowd was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. And then Jesus goes up into the midst of the temple, and it says in verse 15 that the Jews were astonished at the amount of education that Jesus was displaying. 
So in your mind's eye, I'd really like you just to picture Jerusalem at the time of the festival. There's people coming from all different kinds of places. They're all converging on the temple. They're probably mostly ethnic Jews there, but we know that there's people from other backgrounds as well. And within this crowd, they don't really know what to do with Jesus. They don't know his purpose. They don't know what's about to happen. I mean, we do because we've read the story, but these people are highly confused. Verse 25, it says, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man who they're trying to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. And the rulers, the, the Jews, probably the way John is using that term here, the rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? And then down in verse 31, but many of the crowd believed in him. So you've got a positive response coming out of the crowd. You've got questions coming out of the crowd. Those that believed in him were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? And then in verse 32, we have mention of the Pharisees and the chief priests and officers that were sent to seize Jesus. And those, again, according to our Venn diagram, are the people that John is probably referring to as the Jews. And after Jesus spoke, verse 35 says, Then the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not be able to find him? (laughs) And late in the chapter, we get a really good reference as to how people are responding to this Jesus character when he shows up in Jerusalem at the temple. Verse 40, Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This is certainly the prophet. The prophet is an expected character coming out of the Old Testament that was promised. This prophet, one like Moses, would show up. And some in the crowd that day, certainly Jews, were concluding that Jesus is that character, the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. But in verse 41, still others in the crowd were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Jesus was from Galilee, but he wasn't born there. We know the story. So a division occurred in the crowd because of Jesus. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And then in verse 45, the officers, remember the officers that were sent out to seize Jesus? They come back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, all these being a subcategory of the Jews, right? And the Pharisees and the chief priests said to the officers, why did you not bring him? And the officer said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Even the officers that are sent to seize him are mystified by the way Jesus talks. Then we get Nicodemus showing up in verse 50. Remember Nicodemus hasn't showed his face since chapter 3. And he said to the Pharisees and the chief priests, our law, he's including himself in the group, right? Because he's a part of the Jews there. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And they answered, you are not also from Galilee. There's that rift between the north and the south. Little comment, little jab. You are not also from Galilee, are you? No prophet arises out of Galilee. And that's how the chapter ends. A lot of people take what Nicodemus says in the end of this chapter and kind of just says, you know, he's a timid guy. But think about the context. Nicodemus is a man that believes in Jesus, and it could have been very easy for him just to not say anything, to disappear into the crowd. But here at a festival with every eye watching, Nicodemus steps up and attempts to defend this man that he's come to believe in, a man that's mystifying everybody that listens to him. 
a man that is causing some, even within the subgroup of the Jews, to come to faith in him and to trust in him. Well, that's it for this episode. But before we break away, I just want to revisit our original question. Was Jesus a Jew? And in one sense, by all means, yes. Jesus includes himself within that group of people that would be considered temple loyalists. They're people that look to Jerusalem and the temple worship as the place and the way that God would want to be represented on earth. But in another sense, maybe in a narrower sense, the way that term is used within the Gospel of John and the other Gospels as well, Jesus was definitely not a part of the Jews. It's those Jews, the smaller subgroup, that end up pursuing Jesus unto death. The situation in Jerusalem is really complicated in the first century. And as we read our Bibles, it's important to remember that the context is key. And just because a label is placed on somebody doesn't necessarily mean anything about their individual statement of faith. In the next episode... We'll learn a little bit about textual variants. And while that may not sound terribly exciting, I really think you're going to like it. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you next time on the Rethinking Scripture podcast. Bye.